0: Morning. Um, Yeah. Hey. Uh, My name is George Marshall. I'm one of the elders here, so any guests, welcome. Um, We're going to be looking this morning at Deuteronomy 10 12 through 21. So I'm going to get there and I'm going to read that. It should be up on the screen behind you. Excellent. Behind me, not you. Moses writes And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but the fear of the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways? to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He's your praise. He's your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Let's pray. God, would you please take this scripture and help us see you more clearly this morning. May we have um, a clear picture of who you are, the mission you've called us to, the grace you've shown us, the love and choice you demonstrate and that you seek our hearts to come closer to you, to know you better, to in gratitude serve and love and obey, to speak to you God, we thank you for your son's sacrifice, and we ask you to help us to dwell on it day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's message is titled A Heart of Prayer, Um, and that said, you may have noticed, um, either as you looked at the prepare this week, um, or as we just read the passage, that it doesn't really talk a lot about prayer, at least not directly. Uh, And so what gives George you might be saying. Um, And fair enough. Consider today's message really as an object lesson in what we talked about last week, which was meditation on God's word. Um, We're going to probe this scripture through the lens of prayer, asking God to humble us and shape us after his own heart. And that's why we're talking a heart of prayer. What this passage does do really well is describe and praise God's character and his delivering work, both the past, the present, and the future. And understanding who God is, how he's revealed himself, um, what he cares about will help us pray more earnestly, more wisely, and more honestly. So while we may be outsiders to the covenant of Israel as the people of Jesus, we're invited into a new covenant on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. These words here were not necessarily written to us, but they were certainly written for us, for our benefit that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. So we have a lot to learn here. We're called to no less of a wholehearted love, obedience, and allegiance to God. Okay? And God's grace, his, his love and choice continue to define a relationship with God. It's loving obedience as a response of gratitude. And prayer is just that sort of grateful response. So let's just jump right into the text. We starting at verse 12 read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good." We find ourselves right back where we left off last week. Um, What is it that God requires of Israel? He he sums it up with five words, fear, walk, love, serve, and keep. A flisk, uh, yeah, it's not a very memorable acronym, so we're just gonna move forward without that. Starting with fearing and walking, Moses cuts right through their objections. Um, they've just had their father's failures, the, the, the golden calf as, as Moses comes down off the mountain. He's reminded of them this. He's reminded them of their failures, their inability, actually, to be faithful because their hearts are hardened and stubborn. So he cut, cuts right through those objections and reminds them, calling for a wholehearted allegiance. That's the main point of this actual passage. If we were to put it together and say what's the meaning of this passage, it is really about allegiance to their God who's merciful and delivering. God's awesomeness, his fearfulness is going to be a repeating theme of this passage. Um, Fear, or maybe we would prefer to say something like reverent awe, um, is the primary response of those in covenant relationship with God. That's us, that's you, that's me. It is a reflection of our knowledge of our sin. It's a reflection of our need for a savior. It's the wise response as we take stock of God's work of creation and even his judgment to come. So as Israel demonstrates reverent awe, they're going to seek his direction. Um, God is the creator, and he calls them not only to behave, not only to do the moral thing, but to actually model their love and their faithfulness after his own. They're to walk according to his example. So that was, what was that? That was the first couple of phrases and I'm gonna forget what it said, because I am, fear and walk. And we're gonna jump quickly to love and serve. So love and serve, in Deuteronomy 6, we saw the command was to love God, heart, soul, and might. And here we see this reiterated But the wholehearted commitment is actually descriptive of their service. In doing this, there is love and service being tied in a way that we can't separate them. Um, Love leads us to worship. Worship leads to knowing God better, which leads us to more worship and more love. So loving and serving become tied together in the way Moses shares it with Israel. And then finally, we come to the last one, keep. Uh, the Mosaic Law we talked about last week contains over 600 commands and stipulations. There's rules on living wisely. Um, they're, they're supposed to live holy lives before God and before their neighbors, most importantly. Um, obedience to these laws is critical if Israel is going to accomplish the purposes God has put before them. Not just to boast, but to actually do what God has called them to. So as we see, the commands, they're not there to earn them a position with God. God calls them to obey the statutes because he wants to have them be faithful because that's how his name is going to be better known and recognized and understood. So we shouldn't pass over too quickly the goodness of the commands. Um, They weren't intended to harm, to punish, to be killjoys. These were commands that were good. Moses describes them as for Israel's good. It's an expression of God's own goodness. It's not just arbitrary. These are good laws, and so if you do them, it's perfectly fine. These are an outpouring of God's own character. They would do well to obey them because they are good. They're for their blessing. And we're called to reverence, trust, love, worship, and obedience no less than Israel. It's our call as well. Um, And this should, Lord willing, be reflected in our prayers. So this leads into our first, say, meditation. Our prayers are to be characterized by the same things God requires of Israel. First most, fear, reverent awe. If our prayers don't come with a recognition that we are needy, and God is powerful and capable to meet that need, we will pray for less than we ought, and we will pray less than we ought. Uh, Jesus died, He rose again, and we should not take that power for granted. On the other end of the spectrum, pride and our false notion that we have everything that it takes we 're already there, um, can destroy our prayers. Basically, he is Abba Father. He is that close friend. He wants to hear our prayers, but he 's also Lord of Lords, Lord of Lords. He comforts the weak. But the proud don't stand on the Day of Judgment. Next, another meditation. We walk in his ways. In James, we're told to boldly pray for wisdom. Acts, in Acts, we experience the people praying and God actually changing course as he speaks. They're listening to God, letting him direct them as the Spirit wills. So we learned that if we would walk in his ways, that was the second of the steps, we would walk in God's ways, prayer is gonna be our map and compass. It's gonna be the essential tool of the Christian and of the church. We have the blessing of a God characterized by conversation, by talking with us. We don't have a silent God, we don't have a distant God. We have a present God and a talking God. So why would we not seek his wisdom in prayer? And then finally, we come to love and service. And I know it isn't, it isn't easy. Love is, life is messy and hard. It presents opportunities and challenges. It offers competing desires and motivations. We see temptation to sin. God calls us to sacrifice and offers us Jesus' example on the cross. So a good diagnostic tool is the topic of our prayers. Do we ask for a lot but not thank him for a lot? Do our prayers reflect a heart that is turned inward? Is it all about what we need, or does it overflow with love to God and bleed over to the needs of other people? May our prayers be known more for their love than their loveliness, raw honest. Prayer that stems from a dependence on God is better than the flowery language that impresses those around us. Better to say one honest word to God than 50 words that are just meant to please those around us. So what does keeping his commands look like as it touches on prayer? Maybe our final meditation for the moment. Uh, And quickly, I just want to offer a couple of examples. Um, In Matthew 9.38, Jesus commands his disciples to pray for laborers to go into the harvest. So while scripture is not constantly commanding prayer, it's not without command to prayer. We're told to pray for laborers to go into the harvest. And there's kind of a hint there that we may be some of those laborers. In Luke twenty-one thirty-six, Jesus commands his disciples to pray for strength to escape the trials that face them and to stand faithfully at his return. Uh, The writer of Hebrews requests that his readers pray that they would lead out of a clear conscience. It's a request, but it is a do it. We need your prayers. And that holds for us. In Romans 15, 30-33, Paul encourages them to pray for his rescue from unbelievers and the ability to serve well. And he goes on to, to basically say to accomplish the unique mission God had given him so that the whole entire church could experience the joy of its success. We're commanded to pray. And in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, which I look forward to getting to in the men's Bible study, he commands them to pray that he might speak fearlessly, that they might pray in the spirit, asking for the needs of the saints. So we're commanded to pray. That's just a smattering of the New Testament passages that speak to that command to pray. It's enough to tell us that if we're not prayerful, if we're not full of prayer, then God is, in this passage, calling us to account. Moses, just as much as he commands Israel's faithfulness, commands our allegiance, our devotion to the Lord. And we're commanded to pray for those proclaiming the gospel. We're called to pray for the physical and spiritual needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to pray for deliverance from men's schemes. They're abounding. And we're to pray with hearts full of thanksgiving in light of God's boundless grace, prayerlessness is sin. It may not be murder, but it's nonetheless sin and it causes a disruption in our lives and our our success with our relationship with God. And just as Moses says, the command is for our good. I mean the command to pray. We're invited to speak to God offering our hopes and our hurts and our wants, our failures, our successes, all that make us who we are, all that keeps us from who God has called us to be we're we're called to pray. We're invited to take part in the advance of the kingdom by praying for its success. We're called to rest and truly rest in a God who loves us and calls us his own. And that's marked by a prayer, a, a regular lifestyle of prayer. So with that, let's turn to verse 14, uh, back to the passage. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, And the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Moses doesn't waste a moment. God is sovereign over all of creation. He owns the highest heaven, the remotest corner of his holiness, the earth, everything that's in it, every mountain, every valley, every plant, every animal, every Scottish kilt, knitting needle, cookbook, virus. He owns it all. It's all his. Moses teaches exactly what Jesus teaches, exactly what Paul teaches, exactly what Peter teaches. God love first, and our fear, our walk, our love, our service, our faithfulness, our responses to that love. God chose them as his own people to love, to lead, to preserve them for this moment as they were about to enter the land. He chose their fathers. He walked with them through Canaan, through Egypt, through the wilderness. Um, It wasn't out of respect for their stunning faith and obedience. There was none of that to be had. Quite the contrary, it was their need and his sovereign choice. If, we've read, if any of us have read uh, Gentle and Lowly recently, it's that same idea. It's, it's the need, our neediness, our sin that actually draws Christ's heart to us. And in the same way, that's how God responded to Israel. It was their need that drew, not their wonderful obedience and trust and faithfulness. So so it's in that context that Moses calls them to circumcise their hearts. We're not gonna talk about circumcision here very much. We're just gonna let the image sit as it is. But uh, he reminds them of their stubborn and deliberate sin. God offers them a a second chance. Uh, It is a graphic image, but what it does is it unites both the promise to Abraham. He's the one who was told you're gonna go into the land But I require this of you, um, an act of faith, a response of faith, go ahead and do circumcision. So it signifies both the promise and the land. And it signifies that God is the one who's going to accomplish it. They've demonstrated a tendency to rebellion, to faithlessness. And he calls them to instead demonstrate a predisposition for obedience and trust. Okay? And he backs up this call with a stunning vision of who God is. Um, he is the supreme God, an absolute Lord, to quote one writer. It's pretty startling. The ESV says King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or God of Gods and Lord of Lords. He's the great, the mighty, the awesome, or you might say fearful, or terrible, or terrifying. Those sound bad, but the idea is the power is there. It's amazing. How can you stand against it? It isn't just heaping on superlatives. Um, This isn't a kid's song on repeat, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. No, by this, Moses reminds them that the power demonstrated before Pharaoh that led them in the Exodus is the same power available today. No other nation could boast of such a God walking with his people. And then comes a phrase that's a little... Confusing, it could be taken out of context. Um, from the loftiest descriptions of majesty, we shift to one who is impartial and will take no bribe. I mean, what else do we expect of a God who is sovereign over the heavens, yet seeks community with a people? But in this warning, we see Jesus' harshest criticism already preformed, ready to go, ready to be laid out against his own people. What is at stake is whether Israel will treat the law with its stipulations and rules as a means of tricking, I mean, bribing God to bless them. Moses is incredulous. He's not having none of it. God will see right through their false love, their false worship, and their lip service. And Jesus lays out exactly this accusation in Matthew 23, 2 through 33. I'm just going to do a smattering from it. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. You... Then he starts talking directly to them. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These ought to, you ought to have done these without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So as we meditate here again on prayer, what do we find? First... Prayer does not ingratiate us with God. So pray honestly. He already knows our hearts. Bury the Psalms deep in your hearts and pray like David. We've kind of talked hinted about that this morning. Some of these prayers are, are raw. They, they, they strike us as, as shocking. It's because we tend to try to cover up and, and hide those things that seem to us dark and not worth showing to the light. As you struggle against sin, go to the Lord in prayer. Confess sin and seek God's forgiveness together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Recognize that God's arm will not be twisted by a half-hearted devotion. So let's be about prayer with faithful and humble obedience and discipleship. We, we, We need to. We need to come bearing our whole heart as we come in prayer. It's that serious. Uh, next, we've got to find our rest and joy in who God is as we pray. We need to take the time to consider his glory, his mercy, his goodness. It, it can't always be about, can we have this? At some point, we have to dwell on who God is. If we want to bear spiritual fruit, we need to spend time first in prayer with a clear vision of who he is. I mean, basically, effective prayer rests on a comprehensive knowledge and faith, of who God has revealed himself to be. If nothing else, it's the pattern of scripture to find encouragement as we dwell on who God says he is. Uh, take, for instance, Revelation 17, 14. Um, we see Jesus identified as Lord of lords and King of kings, sounds familiar. He's the embodiment of God, the great, the mighty, the awesome, who will judge his enemies with his people by his side. We see this echo of Deuteronomy 10. Finally, we need to pray in light of God's deliverance and promises. Um, we need to meditate on Christ's work on the cross and come with grateful hearts to Jesus. That is part of our prayers. He's enthroned in heaven but welcomes us to come. He invites us to come to him with our prayers. We need to have an established history of remembering God's faithful deeds if we hope to see effective prayer when the trial comes. It's too late when the trial comes to have developed that rapport with God. God is calling us to prayer that loves deeply, trusts consistently, and seeks his will and submits to his sovereign choices. So we pray for God to come vindicating the suffering of his righteous ones, including us. Just as we pray for his salvation work to reach its fullness, We pray from a knowledge of his deliverance and promises in the past. Okay, so that brings us to verses 18 and 19, which act as a case in point of God's not being partial, not being able to be bribed, tricked by their religious observances. And it says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. So Moses first reminds Israel that God looks out for the lowest, those outside the best social and economic circles. He's their defender. He he warns them that lip service, again, won't cut it and tells them their treatment of the fatherless and the widow is a test case for the legitimacy of their religious observance. They won't get by on mere religion, not with God. He sees right through it. If that's all they have, they won't love and serve and keep like he does. And that was the entire point. They won't value the things that he does if it's just skin deep, surface level. And then he moves just a little closer to home. The sojourner would be a particularly desperate position Um, They're unfamiliar with the way things are done. They're distrusted. They're isolated. They're not part of Israel in its worship of God. They're capable but excluded. And this is the experience of Israel in Egypt. They were sojourners. They were the stranger, the alien in the land. And so God says, I'm going to illustrate my mercy and justice by reminding you of my loyal care for you and your experience as strangers in the land. So he calls them, and and once again, offers an example that says, are you gonna do like I do? The question is posed to them like this, will you only show a veneer of care for those strangers or will you truly love them as I do? Will your love and obedience be real or show? Will the circumcision be internal or external? So now as we take verses 14 through 19, we have a pretty solid picture or a model for prayer that you're likely familiar with. Um, It's the Acts model. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's not a magical formula, um, just as obedience is not a way of earning God's grace. Rather, it's a shorthand to help us be deliberate in our prayers. Just as Moses reflected on God's greatness, might, and awesome deeds, we pray and remember who God is, his character, his nature. Um, We come to him humbly and ready to hear his voice. As Moses warns of our tendency to sin, our tendency to stubborn rebellion, we offer confession for sin and we pray for God's wisdom to flee it in the future, to to have a heart made in the image of Christ, to follow after the way of Christ's. Moses reminds the people continually uh, of God's past mercies in Egypt and the wilderness, and we too can pray with an eye to all that God has done, what we've seen him accomplish in the past for us, for others in the body. We thank him for salvation. We thank him for rescue, for warning, for conviction, and for the Spirit's leading, for the opportunity to serve alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we watch as God calls us to serve those who need. So there's another element of this is we can pray for those who are in need. We pray for the fatherless. We pray for the widow, the stranger, the outcast. We pray for real needs. It isn't just say nice things into the void. It's not naming and claiming. It's not manifesting. Um, We shouldn't expect as we pray gold dust will drift down. Don't even get me started there. It's praying for the body to be functional, um, a true reflection of Christ on earth. It's longing to see God's justice done and crying out for it as if our lives actually depended on it. It's living out God's heart in our prayer lives individually and as a body. So if that's what we take in as we read, circumcise your heart, good job. Okay, that brings us to the final verses, twenty twenty one. Um, Moses, the well-seasoned man of God, does a recap. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He's your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Just to point out, that terrifying is the same terrifying that is the awesome God, the terrible, the terrifying. It's the same word. Anyway, he first reminds Israel to fear the Lord. Uh, Before Paul even has a chance to describe the church as its bride-like radiance with Christ, Israel is called to hold fast to God as a wife to her husband. Moses is saying all allegiance is owed to God, and it's all summed up in his name by which they alone are allowed to swear. God alone is to be their boast we come to prayer, we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in what we have seen God do, how he has rescued us. And do I even, uh, uh, probably, the number of times that this passage says, the Lord your God, I didn't count it. It's, it, 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 it's numerous. It, it, their, their boast is supposed to be in God, It's supposed to be in what God has done for them. In the final analysis, they're, they're to fear, serve, and cling out of a sense of gratitude. They aren't earning their way. They aren't earning their keep. They aren't pleasing God enough that he'll continue with his promises. They're responding out of gratitude. In view of all the mighty works they've already experienced, these, these terrifying things that they've seen. And As if Paul is reading right alongside with us, he tells us, um, as we read in uh, men's discipleship yesterday morning, be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter's right there with them. Acts 4.12, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Unbelieving friend, will you know the comfort of a friend that we have in Jesus? Jesus invites us to throw all of our hopes in with God as he makes things new. As he continues to do the salvation he's shown in the past. He offers us access to his heavenly presence. Um, we're encouraged to come and boldly seek, to honestly seek. Seek. But it starts with us recognizing how our sins have severed that line of communication. We're not just spiritually wounded, insensitive to God's voice, limping along. No, we're spiritually dead, apart from Christ. We need new life breathed into us, new hearts implanted. We need that circumcision of the heart. We need a Savior to take the penalty for our sin. And Jesus has come and done precisely that. He has gone to the cross. He's offered himself in our stead, making a way for us to come to the Father. And he invites, come. And we plead the same, come. Family, the the faithful throughout Scripture invite us into conversation with the God of the universe. Um, From the the discussion questions this week, we had Hannah, um, who was Samuel's mother. Um, We get to enjoy or appreciate her barrenness, turn to joy as she proclaims, There is none holy like the Lord. We're invited to experience God in prayer like that. We're called to experience, um, Nehemiah has the broken nation standing before Ezra, Ezra, confessing their sin before God and one another. We're to experience prayer like that. We're to experience prayer and, and know it through the example of people like Daniel. Um, faithful prayer. We, we focus so much on the lion's den that we may forget that the reason he was in the lion's den was a passion to pray consistently. And of course we come to Jesus teaching his followers how to pray, modeling prayer, modeling a passion for prayer. So this year, I would have us renew our commitment to prayer. Um, That's in private, in community, out of a grateful heart, a heart wholly devoted to Christ. Let's not be found stiff-necked, stubborn, hardened by pride, hardened by the cares of our life. Let's pray with one another at every opportunity. Uh, Pray for one another. Pray for those who are proclaiming the gospel. Pray for those who are in prison, who have needs, for the proclamation. Pray for your neighbor, whoever your neighbor is. Pray for those in need, and pray for God to send workers into his field. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, would you help us to fully commit to you? Would you help us to weigh and measure everything in our life That distracts from following you. God, may we have a vision for how you are leading, how you are working within this community, how you would like us to build each other up, to encourage, to challenge, to warn. God, may we pattern our lives after you. May we walk in wisdom, knowing what you would have us do, knowing how your spirit is reaching into the community, calling people to know you, to do justice and mercy, to know love. God, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, may we trust you more and more each day. You know our needs. You know even our wants. God, may we submit those things to you in prayer. God, would you make our prayers overflow with thanksgiving, wonder, gratitude, God, would you help us to forgive one another and find forgiveness? God, may we deal with sin in prayer. Father, would you help us to wisely choose to flee from sin and run after you? God, we come this morning in need of you. Thank you that we can trust your promises, that you invite us to come into your throne room. You invite us to come to you to find mercy, to find rest, to find love. God, we thank you for your choice, your calling, the sure foundation we have because of your cross. God, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.